Well, we're in the midst of a verse-by-verse study through the New Testament book of Revelation. Last time we met, we started chapter 16. Revelation describes a series of visions given to John by Jesus. John records what he sees and hears and presents us for it, presents it for us here in the form of a letter to the churches. And like the rest of Scripture, this book of Revelation tells the consistent story of God's own mission to reach down in love and sacrifice himself to redeem lost sinners throughout the earth and save all who will believe by grace through faith in Jesus. In Revelation, what John's describing is really the end game, the completion of God's redemptive mission as it will actually take place at the end of time. John chronicles the culmination of a long history full of sacrifice, suffering, and death for God's people. But now, evil will soon be defeated forever, and the faithful will be vindicated at last. In chapter 15, John saw a monumental and astonishing sign in heaven, seven angels having the seven last plagues, and we are told specifically that in these last plagues, the wrath of God is complete. All the redeemed are pictured in heaven, standing on the sea of glass that proceeds from the throne of God. And we're told that they overcame. They overcame by not taking the mark of the beast and not worshiping his image. So in heaven, they play harps, singing the song of Moses and the Lamb, a song that honors the gracious deliverance of God's people and the righteous judgment of those who have opposed them. So it is, the story of God's deliverance and judgment unfolds, accompanied by a musical score. In chapter 16, the seven angels begin to unleash the wrath of God upon those who remain on the earth. Yes, he's the creator, sustainer, owner of the universe, and yes, his Goodness and kindness have been manifested in creation, especially in sending his only son, Jesus, to be a sacrifice for our sin. But as part of his plan to redeem us and the rest of creation, God's judgment on the forces of sin and death is both a necessary and an inevitable consequence. So John describes for us the end of an era in world history. The age where sin and death have held sway over the earth will soon be over and then we'll finally see the fully developed kingdom of God who lives forever and ever. Last time we watched as the first angel went and poured out his bowl upon the earth and as a result a foul and loathsome sower came on all of the men who had the mark of the beast and on those who worshipped his image. They had demonstrated their loyalty to the beast at least in part because they wanted to avoid suffering and persecution in this life. But now, their fear of death and their lack of faith receives its own reward. And yet, notice, there's an element of mercy. Because God doesn't simply kill them. But rather, he allows them to be tormented in a way that may press them to repent even now. John then saw the second angel pour out his bowl on the sea. And it became blood as of a dead man, and every living creature in the sea died. Now most, if not all, of the people who remain on the earth at this point have already taken the mark and worshipped the beast. And as such, they've been complicit, if not actually involved, 
in the suffering and death of Christians in these end times. Yes, they tried to make some provision for their own comfort and safety, but they did so while ignoring or participating in the slaughter of innocents all around them. So God addresses this cold-blooded attitude with a suitable response, and John watched as the third angel poured out his bowl on the rivers and springs of water, and they too became blood. So it is that the pressures begin to build on those who remain. They suffer with loathsome sores. Their lives have been fundamentally disrupted from the food they eat to the air they breathe, and now the very water they drink has been turned to blood. These three bowls by themselves already spell agony and doom for virtually every person who remains on the earth, and yet there are still four bowls to go. In the wake of this intolerable wrath, it is as if God himself anticipates the cries of those who would accuse him of injustice. Thus, even before the angels are finished with their bowls, we find this interlude where God's character is affirmed as fully righteous because he has judged these things. Now think about that. As frightening as it is to witness the judgment of evil on the earth as we've seen here in these first three bowls, it would be even more horrifying to imagine creation remaining in the clutches of sin and death forever. Therefore, God's character is affirmed as fully righteous because he has judged these things. If he failed to judge these things, his righteousness would be somehow incomplete. But we are assured that this symphony will not remain unfinished. Instead, the warning is made clear. Our choices matter. God will judge the world. And we must decide in this life whom we will follow. As we return to the text in Chapter 16, verse 6, the angel of the waters continues his song about God's righteous judgment. Yes, he who turned water into wine for a wedding celebration now turns water into blood for a divine reckoning. And this judgment is true and righteous. For they have shed the blood of saints and prophets, and you have given them blood to drink, for it is their just due. Now, suddenly, all this business of the seas and rivers and springs turning to blood comes into focus. There's a poetic irony in this judgment. Those who have shed the blood of saints and prophets will now be given blood to drink. The punishment bears a direct relationship to the sins of those who are now suffering. And so the angel sings, for it is there just do. Of course, for the most part, we don't actually talk that way anymore. Other more modern translations say it more plainly. It is what they deserve. And it's interesting to note that the Greek word God John uses for deserve is the same word used to describe the worthiness of the lamb back in chapter 4. You see, worthiness for one or another outcome, can span the entire range. 
Just as the lamb is worthy of praise and adoration, so the enemies of God are worthy of the justice that they now receive. And in light of this justification, it makes sense, I think, that we sitting here today should ask, what do we deserve? If this book is written as a warning, and I believe that it is, we'd be fools to ignore it. Everyone has a sense of justice inside of themselves, just as we have a sense of what's right and wrong. It's part of what it means to be created in the image of God. But while those things were created inside of us, we are the ones who must choose whether or not to do right. And the truth is, sometimes we rebel. Sometimes we choose to do wrong. The Bible teaches that all of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God that he created inside of us. So if we stand on our merits before the righteous God of the universe, we stand wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, naked, and guilty. Without Jesus, we are effectively no better off than these earth dwellers with their loathsome sores and their blood to drink. But by the grace of God, he draws us to turn away from our sin and to put our faith in Jesus, who died to forgive our sins and give every believer the assurance of eternal life. Without Jesus, the simple answer is, we are all worthy of judgment. It's what we deserve. Now here in chapter 16, the long history of suffering and bloodshed on the earth is coming to a dramatic end. And and remember, once again, the martyrs who were under the altar back in chapter 6? They had cried out for vengeance and for divine justice since their innocent blood had been shed for the gospel. Back then, God urged them to be patient until all of the suffering and persecution had come to an end, and then they were given white robes, and they rested. Well, perhaps now they will be satisfied with the divine retribution that they hoped for, even if it doesn't look exactly as they had imagined it would. Perhaps they are even the very ones that John hears speaking in this next verse. Verse 7. And I heard another from the altar saying, Even so, Lord God Almighty, true and righteous are your judgments. Well, we gather that John heard another different voice. A voice that comes not from the temple as before, but this time It emanates from the altar. And this voice is heard saying, Even so, Lord God Almighty, true and righteous are your judgments. So it is that the voice from the altar echoes the song of the angel. Speaking of God, the voice makes two observations about his judgments. They are true and righteous. They are true in that they accurately resemble the real nature of things. They are not fictitious, imaginary, counterfeit, simulated, or pretend, and they are righteous in that they are holy and absolutely just. But as we discussed last time, it's God himself that is the yardstick by which we measure what justice is. Yes, it sounds circular at first. However, the very idea of righteousness begins and 
ends with God. So it's understandable that from our point of view, it might look circular. But this is exactly why it's so ridiculous for us as mortal beings, the created ones, to charge our creator with some kind of injustice or wrongdoing. Because our very sense of justice and wrongdoing has come from him first. We only know what right and just are because God created us with a sense of such things. Moreover, notice how the two concepts, true and righteous, hold naturally together because without both, there is no justice. You may be earnestly seeking justice, but if you were proceeding from false information, you'd never know what a just result was supposed to look like. On the other hand, even if every witness testified the truth to the truth, if the judge himself was dishonest or unwise you may well still end up with an unrighteous judgment. But God's judgments are both true and righteous. God is not arbitrary or capricious. He doesn't take bribes. He doesn't do things randomly for no reason. He is not thoughtless or heartless or reckless. Indeed, we might expect the wicked in this story to be slain without pity in the same fashion that they slew the saints. But there is a strange restraint in the justice of God. If God is responding to the plea of the martyrs, he's certainly doing it in his own way. And God is frequently more patient and merciful than we might expect. Even now, in this part of the story, the incremental, methodical nature of these plagues, these bold judgments, suggests that something more than wrath is being intended here. Even if the effort is utterly futile, it seems that these bowls of misery poured out one after the other are still designed to urge some kind of repentance. Verse 8. Then the fourth angel poured out his bowl on the sun, and power was given to him to scorch men with fire. Notice once again that the power was given given by God, of course. Is that a problem? I don't think so. I mean, we each receive gifts and abilities from God, and he desires that we use them to glorify his name. But what we actually choose to do with these gifts and abilities, that's up to us. Just because God gives them to us doesn't make him responsible for the way that we use them. We see here that God's entrusted these seven angels with amazing powers to produce pain, destruction, and chaos on earth. Just so, this fourth angel faithfully wields the power that God has given him to scorch men with fire. Even today, in this age of grace, the sun burns people. happens all the time. But the word for scorch that John uses here means more than that, more than a sunburn. It actually means to be tortured with intense heat. Interesting that the parable of the sower is the only place outside the book of Revelation where the same word is used. That parable appears both in Matthew chapter 13 and Mark chapter 4. And of course, the reference there is to the seed that was sown and fell upon the stony places where they did not have much earth. As the story goes... They immediately sprang up because they had no depth of earth, but when the sun was up, 
they were scorched. And because they had no root, they withered away. Well, nothing was poured out on the sun to intensify the heat in that parable. Yet because they had no root, the sprouts from the seeds were scorched and they withered away. Such was the withering heat produced by this bowl of wrath. Verse 9, and men were scorched with great heat and they blasphemed the name of God who has power over these plagues and they did not repent and give him glory. So you get the impression that this bowl poured out on the sun produced some kind of a solar flare, something that increased the intensity of normal solar radiation. And men were scorched with great heat, but once again, it doesn't appear that they were killed outright. Thus, the sequential, incremental, non-fatal nature of these plagues again raises the issue of repentance. And yet this time, John addresses the question directly. Rather than simply moving on to the next bowl, John pauses to focus on the response of the earth dwellers who were scorched with great heat. And what does he say? At first, they lifted up their voices and blasphemed the name of God who has power over these plagues. They plainly recognized that it was God who has the power over these plagues. But rather than taking responsibility for their own choices and seeing this plague as the just consequence of their sin, instead, they reacted in anger and blamed God for their condition. They blasphemed the name of God, belching hurtful, hateful lies about him. Then John noticed something else about their response to God's wrath. They did not repent and give him glory. Evidently, while these men had taken the mark and worshipped the image of the beast, that did not, by itself, absolutely prevent them from repenting. Repentance was somehow still available to them. But as it turns out, it just wasn't something they really wanted to do. As hard as it may be to imagine such a response, I think this kind of reaction isn't altogether unfamiliar. Even today, people curse God for things in life that they may have largely brought on themselves. Even if there is no such direct connection, people blame God for the consequences of sin in the world even though we are the ones who choose to sin. The very things that God intends to draw us to repentance are somehow twisted by sinful men as an excuse to deny God's goodness. And even as God is literally and figuratively turning up the heat on those who rejected him, the events themselves have a certain clarifying effect. As one scholar explained, now we can clearly see that these folks have not simply been bullied into worshiping the beast in order to avoid affliction, because here they're suffering from affliction and yet they still refuse to worship God. Instead, they reveal their true loyalties by blaspheming God. 
verse 10. Then the fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast, and his kingdom became full of darkness, and they gnawed their tongues because of the pain. Well, we've already learned that the beast received his throne from Satan, the dragon. And when he took his place on that throne, the beast began to blaspheme God, to slaughter the saints, and to demand the allegiance of all who remained. So again, it's remarkable that God didn't simply slaughter the beast and destroy his kingdom. Instead, his kingdom became full of darkness. So first, God sends his angel to stoke the heat of the sun and scorch men with fire. And now, just as people are rushing indoors to take shelter from the sun, the world is plunged into darkness. Now, we can't even speculate as to the mechanism in play here. John doesn't even attempt to describe it in natural terms. He simply says the fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast and his kingdom became full of darkness. And and that's an interesting phrase John uses. The kingdom of the beast is not just darkened. His kingdom became full of darkness. Evidently, there was no light available from any source, anywhere. The darkness... The sores, the bloody water, it must be utterly agonizing since those who suffered gnawed their tongues because of the pain. Like the darkness that engulfed Egypt before the exodus, however, this is a far cry from the outright destruction of the kingdom. Once again, it seems as though God is applying pressure on these people to reconsider their loyalties even now. There's no reason to think that there's any question in their minds regarding who's responsible for these plagues. They've already said it's God. They've rightly identified him as the source. And yet they consistently fail to see the connection between their sin and God's response. Now, we're not told how long these events take to transpire. We, do, we don't know how, how quickly these sequence of events unfolds. But it seems that a reasonable person might pause to reflect on the course of events that have ensued in their life since taking the mark of the beast and deciding to worship his image. After all, they've given their loyalty to a beast that, dis, that delights in their despair and destruction. They have hitched their wagon to a dark star, and it's falling fast. You would think they might reconsider their choice of loyalty and turn back to God. But, verse 11, they blasphemed the God of heaven because of their pains and their sores and did not repent of their deeds. Some people get so entrenched in their unbelief They hold on to it like a lifeline. God gives us breath and free choice. He's revealed himself in creation and in his word. And he has tried persistently to draw lost souls to saving relationship with Jesus. But just as persistently, many have chosen to reject him. They are overwhelmed by the fear of death. But for some reason, they won't exchange their fear for faith. Instead, they hold on to their fear stubbornly. 
as if somehow it might save them. But deep inside, they know it's an exercise in futility. They've rejected Christ and therefore have no basis for hope. Death is inevitable. They are unsure of what lies beyond. But for some reason, they are sure they don't want to believe in a risen Jesus or in his promise of eternal life. And the irrational quality of their decision to reject Christ is now expressed in an equally irrational response. For as we saw in the previous verse, those who remained gnawed their tongues because of the pain. Now, how's that going to help? It makes no sense. Just so, refusing Christ when there's no other way just rubs salt in the wound of our own rejection. Nevertheless, the constant refrain repeated by so many lost souls now and presumably then is that God is unfair. You ever heard that one? But the redeemed in Christ and the angels of the Lord, they sing a decidedly different song. The angel of the water sings, You're righteous, O Lord, because you've judged these things. And the martyrs who've given their lives for the gospel look on as God dispenses his wrath and say, Even so, Lord God Almighty, true and righteous are your judgments. Now, the decision by many to walk away from their own salvation is often defended as being more mature than the wistful fairy tale of a risen Savior. But the fact of the matter is, the decision to reject Jesus is little more than a childlike justification to keep doing as we please. It's a petulant pride that makes a person wrap themselves up in their fear and insist on sovereign authority over the dark little corner where they live. Here, in the end times, John describes people refusing to acknowledge God's sovereign power. Ironically, at the very same time, his sovereign power is being so clearly demonstrated in their life. It's the classic paradox of the one who refuses to believe in a God who allows suffering even as they are blaming God for all the suffering they see. We might assume that rational people would repent once the inevitability of judgment becomes obvious. That seems to be the case in Luke chapter 16 when the rich man finds himself in hell while poor Lazarus was in heaven. Recognizing that he had missed the chance to be saved during his lifetime, the rich man hoped that his loved ones might turn to Jesus and avoid this place of torment where he found himself So he asks Abraham to send Lazarus to warn his family, saying, if one goes to them from the dead, surely they will repent. Well, you see, this rich man assumed that if this truth were shared with his living relatives, they would understand it, accept it, act on it by believing. But Abraham declined, saying, look, if they don't hear Moses and the prophets, they're not going to be persuaded by someone rising from the dead. After all, there is one who has already risen from the dead, and yet there are many who still remain unpersuaded. 
Abraham refused the rich man's request because he understood the strange circumstance of the human family, that their rebellion against God has nothing to do with the evidence. And that is once again demonstrated here. As men see God driving them to despair in the hope that they might repent, and yet even though they are precisely aware of the reason for the judgments that fall on them, their fury against God only increases. Now, if you consider yourself a rational person, you may have trouble accepting some of the things that John has written here. And I confess that we can't be certain whether this account of the end times should be taken literally in every respect or if John is describing visions that are mostly symbolic of the things that will take place. But either way, even if you regard the story as mostly symbolic, you've still got to consider the actual image behind the metaphor and figure out what it all means. Yes, either way, whether we accept this story as true or reject it outright, we must do so by faith. So the question becomes a simple one. Whether or not you believe in Jesus for eternal life, you do so by faith. And if you will not put your faith in Jesus, what then do you put your faith in? And what is your source of hope? If you can't accept supernatural things, you're going to have a hard time accepting any promise of salvation and eternal life. But if you long for the good hope of eternal life, put your faith in Jesus. Believe in him, and you will be saved. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for our many blessings and for the hope of eternal life that you've given us by grace through faith in Jesus. We're also grateful, Lord, that you have a role for us in your plan to redeem sinners everywhere. And yet we can tell, Lord, by reading this book, that people sometimes resist and reject their own salvation for reasons that don't make much sense. Accordingly, we can't always feel responsible about the choices that others make, however desperately we long to see them come to their own salvation. For even you struggle against the will of those who refuse to repent. Help us, Lord, to seek out and find opportunities for us to share our faith. And then give us the courage to do it with gentleness and respect. We long to be worthy ambassadors, reflecting the light of your love to a world darkened by sin. And we pray that we would learn from the past, even as we look forward to the future, filled with a sense of hope and purpose. We thank you and praise you in the name of Jesus. Amen.